We're studying Acts chapter 3 this morning. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in one of the seats in front of you there. And in that gray Bible, I think it's on page 531. 531 is Acts chapter 3. This is really a a large section, and we're only going to consider the first 10 verses, and then next week we'll look at 11 through 26 of the same chapter. And then uh, two weeks from now, um, chapter 4, uh, really continues on through chapter 4, verse 31. And this is a, a one event over a two-day period. And, uh, and if, if you want to think about the sections of this, chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 31, what you have here is the miracle Uh, Then you have the message. Then you have Peter and John's arrest and an examination and trial um, by the religious authorities. Once they're threatened and released, then they have a prayer meeting where they consider the threats of the religious establishment and they pray for boldness that God would enable them to continue to speak the gospel and the place where their meeting is shaken. So this is a two-day event and it starts around three o'clock in in chapter three at the time of prayer. So let's read chapter three, verses one through 10 together. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in the life of this particular beggar, a man who is over 40 years old, who has not been able to walk ever, who would not have been allowed to enter the temple. This was as close as he could get to your presence. Because of his infirmity, we thank you that you chose to bring life to this forgotten outcast within the society. We thank you that for him, And for your own glory, you restored him, 
and you saved him. We pray that you would speak to us from this passage so that we may know how we ought to respond to you and your word today. We pray your Holy Spirit would teach us and lead us and guide us into all truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in verse 1, Peter and John are making their way up to the temple at 3 o'clock. And Peter and John were friends just by way of background, uh, friends for a long time uh, from separate families. But Peter and James and John, James and John were called the sons of thunder and Jesus chose them. Uh, They were um, uh, fishermen along with Peter. And so their families likely worked together. And so Peter and John had been through a lot together. They had worked together. Then they had followed Jesus together. And Peter and John would have many more days together. But Peter and John here um, around three o'clock are going up to the temple. Now, just to help you kind of set the context, um, the church had begun at Pentecost with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had come upon the new believers. Peter preached the gospel. 3,000 men were saved and added to the church that day. Um, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we have a brand new church, um, maybe months old, that is increasing in people, maybe by the thousands. By the end of this episode in in chapter 4, verse 31 and later, Later, we learned that there are 5,000 new believers, men added uh, to salvation as a result of this healing that takes place on this day. So it is an expanding church, but they don't have a church building. The church isn't gathering um, on a property or at a location. There's not a building like we enjoy or a property that we enjoy. Um, There is no building whatsoever. It is a church without walls. And so what they would do is they would meet, uh, as we read in chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, they would meet in the temple and then they would meet in homes. So they would gather together in the temple, and the temple accommodated large groups of people. It had places like um, Solomon's portico and a colonnade and other areas, the court of the Gentiles, the women's court. There were all sorts of places where large groups could gather. Uh, and so the, the new church of thousands, whenever they would come to the temple, they would gather in a corner of that temple mount. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that the Temple Mount is a large, large, flat structure uh, that occupies a good about a bit of real estate. And on that Temple Mount was the temple itself uh, in a very small area of the Temple Mount. But the Temple Mount was enormous, uh, as it's historically um, been identified as the Temple Mount there. <clears throat> so there was no building, so they were meeting at the temple. But not only that, um, Peter and John were still observant Jews. They were observant, meaning that although they had placed their faith in Jesus, and that Jesus came as a fulfillment to the law, and that in many ways Jesus had dismantled, or not dismantled, that's a bad word, but, but Jesus had uh, fulfilled the law in such a way that they did not need to observe all the rules of the law, dietary laws and things like that, <clears throat> they were still taking part of the regular rhythms of the church. And so we learned that at 3 p.m. or the afternoon time, uh, it was a time of prayer. And this was the normal, regular routine uh, of daily temple observance. There was a time of prayer, and it accompanied two sacrifices. Every single day, other than the Sabbath, there was a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. In Exodus chapter 29, 
Moses is instructing the Israelites on this particular daily routine. And he says, now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, offer a tenth measure of fine flour, mingled with a fourth of hen of beaten oil, and a fourth of hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer it with a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma of food offering to the Lord. This shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak to you there. Now listen, don't get lost in the details here. There was to be a daily sacrifice And this daily sacrifice was to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord, a thank offering, a drink offering, uh, a grain offering, and then an animal offering. So that's two lambs a day, uh, every day throughout their generations, they were to offer. And so at this time of offering, if you wanted to be in the place where God was most likely to be met, and you wanted to be in the place where God was most likely to be pleased, This is where you would go. That Exodus passage continues and it says, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. The people of Israel shall be sanctified by my glory and the offering and the temple, and I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to me to serve as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So according to this passage in Exodus, chapter 29, verses 38 through 46, around this daily offering, the morning and the evening offering, the Lord promised that if they continued to do these offerings, that He would dwell among them. His presence would be with them. He would be pleased with them. He would meet with them. He would speak to them. He would sanctify Israel by His glory. The tent and the temple would be consecrated by the Lord's presence and His glory, that He would come and dwell among the people of Israel, and that He would be their God. And in verse 46, they would know... That is, that they would have absolute certainty that He is the Lord their God who delivered them from slavery in Egypt and who dwells among them. That was the power of the daily sacrifice. The Lord meeting with His people. The Lord's presence being with them. And so that's why you see uh, in the time of the Babylonian exile, um, when the temple was destroyed and there were no daily sacrifices, uh, you get a great psalm, uh, I think it's Psalm 132, that by the rivers of the waters of Babylon we hung our harps and we wept. For there our captors required of us songs of Israel. They were taunting them saying, sing worship songs for us. And they said, how could we sing songs of worship outside of you, Jerusalem? How could we possibly worship in this place? And then they pray this crazy imprecatory prayer, you know, break their teeth, Lord. (laughs) Uh, Smash their teeth, these wicked people who are asking us to worship in such a foreign way. It was because they were carried away from the presence of God in the prescribed way to worship God. By the way, 
This happens daily, even now. This sort of wailing experience. Uh, Jews gather daily at the Wailing Wall, also called the Western Wall. If you've seen images of this, uh, the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall is a place where the Temple Mount has, as you know, been occupied uh, by the 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 the, the, uh, the Golden Mosque. I forget what the name of it is. The 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 dome of the what is it called? Yeah, the Dome of the Rock, thank you, smart people, smarter than me. The Dome of the Rock, it's occupied by Muslims, and, uh, and that entire Temple Mount is covered. Um, Jews, when we visited there, could come escorted, and uh, these three young college-age guys who were uh, Jews um, requested to be escorted, and, and um, while they were being escorted onto the Temple Mount, uh, a unit of guards, six or seven guards surrounded them to escort them through on this uh, approved way that they could visit. And they, they did it in a taunting way. And there was a, a scuffle, as we observed from a distance, of these uh, Muslims who were practicing uh, basically a school session. The kids were coming out of a school right there on the Temple Mount by the Dome of the Rock. And these students were coming out and they were taunting each other and yelling. It is a daily struggle because the Jews want to occupy the Temple Mount where the temple and the presence of God was. And now the closest they can get with any sort of religious freedom is that Western wall, that wailing wall. And you've probably seen pictures of it where they will get really close and they will, they will just rock back and forth and say these prayers and they'll tuck prayers into the crevices and the corners because you want your prayer to be closest to the presence of God you can. So you get right, they get right up to that wall and they, they write these prayers and they tuck them as high and as close to where the presence of God used to be. This happens daily. There's a whole routine. Your hands must be clean. All men have to have their heads covered. You can never back away from that wall. You can't show your back to it. You have to walk away with your face toward the wall as a sign of reverence toward the presence of God. And their only desire is get as close to God's presence as they can uh, and to slip that prayer even closer to the presence of God. What is your best hope to meet with God? If you wanted to be close to God and you wanted to have your prayers answered, where would you go? This is the only hope that the nation Israel and people around the world, frankly, from all different faiths will go to that place. And they think that by getting as close to that location as they can, they can meet with God. But for believers in Jesus Christ, it's not a location that matters, but a person. It's not that we have to travel or do some sort of a pilgrimage to a holy place. You can meet with Jesus You can meet with God because of Jesus. His presence matters more than your location. And the reason that's true for us is that Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. Our sins created a a barrier between us and God. And no matter what we try to do, our moral works, our good works, our religious ideas, our performance, our religious duties, all of those things don't atone for the sins that cut us off 
from God's presence. It is only Jesus Christ and His death on the cross that creates this relationship that we can have with God. When we repent of our sins and we believe in Jesus, we're now adopted into the family of God, filled with this Holy Spirit, and now we have access to God the Father's presence anywhere you want to be. So if I ask you, where do you want to meet with God? You can say anywhere If the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you and you have given your life to Jesus Christ, you put your faith in Him, there is not a more holy place for you to meet with the presence of God according to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since we have this great high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, let us hold fast to our confession. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one in Jesus who in every respect was tempted just like we were, are, but was without sin. Because of him, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. So when Jesus says in Matthew 28, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest, he's inviting us into his presence, not to a location. Amen. Praise God. You don't have to travel to Jerusalem to be close to God. The truth is you can have access to God the Father and be in his presence because of Jesus. But these, uh, the Jews in this passage in, in Acts chapter 3, they were flocking to get into the temple area at the evening sacrifice and the morning sacrifice as a desperate attempt to get into the presence of God. I mentioned this quote a few weeks ago. Because although it's true that you can meet with Jesus, you can meet with God because of Jesus at any time, in any place right now, it is also true that there is a special blessing on the regular gathering of His body and bride. This meeting right here. Not just this one in this location. But all around where the Word of God is preached, Revelation 1-3, blessed are those who hear and read the words of this prophecy. There is, a, there is a blessing on the public proclamation and the hearing of God's Word and the worship of God together through Jesus Christ. Uh, a church called the Mariner's Church. Uh, one of their speakers said this, If you really, really wanted to not just watch a movie, but experience a movie, you would go to a theater or to, um, uh, you would set up your home theater in such a way that all the sound system is right and you've got the right snacks in the right environment. You wouldn't go to a, a swimming pool to experience a great movie or a golf course. Also, if you wanted to get physical exercise, you would go to a gym, not the all you can eat buffet. In the same way, if your desire is to behold the beauty of Jesus, to really know Jesus, to really experience Jesus, to hear from Him and to learn from Him and to submit to Him, you put yourself in a place that facilitates beholding. One of the most strategic places that you can go time and time again is the local church where the gathering of God's people come together for the purpose of exalting Jesus and hearing His word. Of that most strategic place, you go to the place where the Bible is opened and taught accurately and regularly and where you're exposed to the Scriptures, the Word of God, the very words that the Holy Spirit of God wrote Himself, and to hear the Word of God in the context of the people of God who know you and love you and keep you accountable. All this because the Spirit loves to exalt Jesus, to point us to Jesus, and to help us to behold the beauty of Jesus. 
The Spirit's role is to counsel us and to comfort us and to remind us and to teach us of all truth that He Himself authored, and He does this activity regularly in the context of the gathering of the body and bride of Jesus. If you want to, if you want to really behold Jesus, this is the place to be. Not, I don't mean this like our place. I mean this, Lydie's. Uh, Grace Church, the new church plant over at the Soderton High School, um, Faith Church, Bible Church, Grace Bible, all these places around here where Jesus is exalted and the Bible is open and the regular committed gathering body of believers come together for the sole purpose to exalt Jesus and to behold Jesus. If you want to meet with Him, that's where you meet with Him. But here in this place, it was the temple, and at that time, they were meeting uh, for God's presence, uh, in God's presence, and they come across this uh, man lame from birth. Look at verse 2. A man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. This man lame from birth... Uh, lame meaning a physical infirmity, not lame like my lame dad jokes, but, but lame in a way that he can't walk. Uh, we know that from Acts 4.22 that he's over 40 years old. So for 40 years, this person has been completely 100% dependent on someone else to move him around. His primary means of provision is dependency on friends, family, or strangers to carry him and to place him in a strategic place to beg. And he chooses this place called the beautiful gate. Now, there are a number of potential gates, and there's some debate about which one is referenced here. And I'm not going to go into all the information that you might want to know about which gate it was. But it's likely that it was a place called Herod's Double Gate, which was a wide entrance and had a lot of people flowing through it because that's strategic. He needs a strategic place to beg, number one, for maximum traffic flow, right? Maximum number of people that would be exposed to him. But also a better place when you have guilty conscience people who are trying to meet with God. How do you ignore a beggar, right? If, if you're going to get the favor of a generous God and then on your way to meet with a generous God, you have a beggar who's crying out for help. And, and how hard-hearted would you have to be to, to deny this guy? So it's probably a very strategic place and a very helpful place and a place where he um, might have even raised a lot of money. The beggar took advantage of this location. In verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he approached them and he asked them to receive alms from them. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Right? Behold, day is the Greek word. Like, Give us your full attention. And this guy is probably thinking, ka-ching, right? This is my opportunity. This is the payday. And Peter said, verse 5, he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The guy expected money. Peter said, I don't have any money, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Um, Tony Morita, in his commentary, remembers a story that uh, happened in a college town. And in, in this college town, a local pastor, the congregation during the months where school was in session, the congregation would swell by a couple of hundred more people. 
And he, he, he said, after years of noticing this trend that we had so many people in our church and then when college came, a couple hundred more would come. He said, our average budget bump increase in giving was about $16 in session. And he said, because all college students were poor and they didn't have anything to give. But he said, I'll never forget one Sunday um, as we passed the offering plate, which is what they used to do. And you would you know, give whatever money that you had on you. As the plate was being passed, uh, a college student had had a, a sausage, egg, and cheese biscuit, and he jotted this verse down, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to you, and he pinned it to the biscuit, and he put the biscuit in the offering plate. <clears throat> Peter says, I don't have any silver and gold, I don't have any money to offer you, but what I do have I give to you. And what Peter offered was much more valuable than any change he could have dropped in his basket there. It's interesting to me a couple of things. <clears throat> this guy didn't seek to be healed. He wasn't looking for anything life-changing other than a few coins. It could have even been that a person his age, over 40, had no hope of being healed. It could be that during Jesus' ministry, which was just a few months, maybe even years before, that he had heard about um, other people being healed by Jesus. And so his hope might have swelled a little bit. Have you ever been hopeless for a long time and then just had a real glimmer of hope and then that hope fades and it turns into despair? Despair is that condition uh, that is so crippling to our spirit when there, when there once was hope and maybe it waned in and out and up and down. And, and then after a time, that hope is dashed completely and now all that's left is a despair. Maybe this guy was in a position of despair. He wasn't looking for anything life-changing. He wasn't seeking to be healed. He wasn't asking to be healed. Maybe even just a year or two earlier, Jesus had come through the temple gates and had healed people. You think about the man born blind in John chapter 9, about six months before the crucifixion, so it would have put it within a couple years of Acts chapter 3 in this event right here. Jesus saw the blind man begging. He spit on the ground, made some mud, put it on his eyes and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And that man is completely healed. This particular situation, this guy was not seeking to be healed. Jesus was his best hope and Jesus was no longer physically with them. He wasn't seeking Jesus. He wasn't seeking healing. He wasn't seeking salvation. This act from Peter and John is an act of divine sovereignty and divine power for the sake of the gospel message and the glory of God. It's a divine moment. Peter and John are walking with the Spirit as they walk into this particular place, and they had likely already passed dozens of beggars. They had likely already passed, as they made their way through Jerusalem, dozens of people in need, people with physical needs, people with spiritual needs, and they walked right past them. There would have been no shortage of the sick, the poor, the lame, the lepers, or others in their path. But for some reason, the Spirit highlighted this man and this opportunity. And this miracle precedes the message of the gospel. And that's often how miracles in Scripture happen. The miracle precedes the message, and the message is authenticated and vouched for by the Holy Spirit through miracles. Look at verse 7. 
So Peter offers him the gospel, and he says he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now listen, this would have been his first time past a certain point in the temple. There would have been uh, no allowance for anything impure or unclean, and whether we understand it or not, Scripture would not have allowed this person to go any further. This is his first time to be made whole in the presence of God. Before that, he was completely cut off and separated from the presence of God. But Peter, with compassion in his right hand, through the Spirit, raises him up, and through this use of touch, he is made completely whole. We don't know the details of his condition other than that he was unable to walk and was lame from birth, but somehow in this transaction, tissue and muscle and strengthening and the associated nerves and the brain activity that would have controlled these muscles that had never been used before, all these components came together in some sort of a complex movement immediately, and, and it happened in such a way that the guy who had never walked before was suddenly running and leaping. I've always had this particular image in my mind of this moment. Uh, what's your vertical? Anybody in here um, got a pretty good vertical? I know Joe can dunk, maybe. All right, you can touch the rim. Kirsten can dunk. I don't know what your vertical is, uh, but when I think about I've always wanted to dunk a basketball, and I've always not been able to jump very high, and uh, so I don't have a very uh, good vertical. But every time I think of this, I think of this one moment called the shot. Uh, basketball fans might remember this. May 7th, 1989, the Bulls are trying to fend off elimination and clinch their uh, first round series against the Cleveland Cavaliers. And down by one uh, score, down by one point with three seconds remaining, Michael Jordan took an inbound pass around the three-point line, and he worked his way to the three-point line, or to the free-throw line. And right as he got there, he elevated, um, and and, and, uh, this guy named Elo flew by him while Jordan just hung in the air, and he drained the shot at at the free-throw line. And... And then he, when he buried the jumper, he ran around and, and leapt in the air and pumped his fist really high in this uh, kind of iconic um, photograph called the shot that sent the Bulls to the uh, 1989 NBA playoffs. As soon as he did that, as soon as I read this passage as a new believer, that was the moment I thought of, of Jordan doing that l- that joy, that leap, that uh, fist pump swinging motion. Um, It's an incredible picture that this guy is leaping. And the word leap is an unusual Greek word here. It finds its um, origin in the Hebrew passage in Isaiah chapter 35. Just turn with me to Isaiah 35. Short chapter, we're going to read it. But you're going to see in this man's leaping a fulfillment of prophetic scripture from hundreds of years before. In Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah is prophesying to the people of Israel that the the desert land that they're walking through, this 
parched place where there is no presence of God, where there is no blessing. He's prophesying that there's going to come a day when the, the deserts will be turned into a river. Isaiah chapter 35, he says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. I don't know what a crocus is. Um, some kind of a flower, I'm sure, that blossoms. Uh, it says, It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to all those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, and he will come and save you. What is this prophesying? He's prophesying Jesus coming to take vengeance on the serpent who will, you know, in the Proto-Evangelion in Genesis 3, one born of the son of man, uh, of the woman will come and crush his head with his heel. And it says, when that comes, he will come and save you when our God comes with vengeance. Verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, right? John 9, the eyes of the blind were opened when Jesus came and healed that man in the temple. The ears of the deaf unstopped. That happened in Jesus' ministry. Verse 6, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Same verse, same word, same expression that they saw taking place. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, and the burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty grounds of water, uh, ground springs of water. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness, and the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk along the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it, and they shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. What's he talking about? He's talking about the way of salvation through Jesus Christ and all the blessings that would take place on the way of holiness. Isaiah was prophesying that and he said that some of the signs of the coming of that day would be that the, the lame would leap and the blind would see and the ears of the deaf would be unstopped and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. That's what was taking place in this moment. Now, what's the result? Verses 9 and 10 of Acts chapter 3. <clears throat> Verses 9 and 10 tell us that all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This miracle drew a crowd, and the crowd heard the gospel, and the crowd responded to the gospel. The miracle of this man drew a crowd, and we're going to find out in the next, uh, next week, um, Peter is going to preach a sermon to the gathered crowd, and at the end of that, 5,000 people are going to turn away from their sins and be saved. <clears throat> Peter will give some of the clearest gospel proclamations um, in this sermon from the crowd that's gathered. <clears throat> Oftentimes, God gathers a crowd so that people can hear the gospel. <clears throat> One of my favorite authors, a guy named Mark Cahill, in his book, One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven, he says, whenever there's a crowd, I assume they are gathered so I can share the gospel. 
He just carries backpacks full of tracks and he will go to festivals and concerts and he'll just stand there and just start witnessing to people. And he's been doing this for years. A few years ago, I had this 20-something-year-old guy and I met him in Doylestown and he had a, excuse me, he had a weird vision to unite um, the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. It was his life mission. Uh, he was like 23 or 24 years old. And he was kind of a dynamic, hippie kind of a guy. And I met him and talked to him, and, and he shared with me this passion. And in my mind, I was thinking, what a waste of a lie. I just don't know how this is even possible, how to bridge it's the Reformation. You know, we celebrate Reformation weekend this weekend, 1517. It's been a long time since the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. That divide is pretty you know, expansive at this point. But this guy from Doylestown, it was going to be his mission to <clears throat> you know, bring all that and heal all that worldwide together. An unusual guy, and as he shared his thing, he asked me, you know, what's important to you, or what's your life about, and I told him my testimony, and I shared the gospel with him. I didn't think it had any effect on him. He was like, cool, cool. And then he went on his way, and and I prayer walked up and down the main strip in Doylestown as we were considering a church plant there for maybe six months or so. And I kid you not, maybe five different occasions, I would see that guy, and I don't know why, but he would always have a crowd of 10 people around him, always. Businessmen, lawyers, regular people, college kids, it didn't matter. This guy could draw a crowd, and I could only imagine he was telling them his crazy ideas. Because every time I would walk by, one time I was walking across the street, and I saw him over there, and I just shook my head. I was like, how does this guy draw a crowd? But every time, five times, I think, as after I had met with him and talked with him that time, Five times he would call me over. Hey, come over here. Hey, tell these guys what you told me that one time. Tell them your story. And I would walk into a group of random strangers and with his introduction and, and you know the crowd that he had gathered and the attention that he had garnered, I would share the gospel and I would share my testimony. And then I would just move on. And, and that happened on a number of occasions. <clears throat> it was the most bizarre thing that I still to, my, to this day can't make any sense of it. Other than oftentimes, if the Lord brings a crowd together, he does so for a reason so that the gospel can be clearly proclaimed. And he'll use anybody, a weird kid from Doylestown, a a guy named Mark Cahill, a a Protestant, um, I mean a Protestant, a secular concert. If anybody is gathered, the Lord often uses those opportunities for the gospel to be spread. Let's close with this idea that I see uh, from this lame uh, beggar who was healed. I want you to think about this, and I want you to um, maybe consider this as an application for today. Never underestimate the power of one redeemed life. Never under, uh, underestimate the power of one redeemed life. Peter and, James fixed their, Peter and John fixed their attention on this one person, a societal throwaway, an outcast, um, and they healed him, which led to a sermon being preached and the gospel proclaimed and over 5,000 men being saved. Understand this, God redeems individuals, and when he redeems individuals, they bear influence. Think of the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, who was such an outcast that she came to the well in the middle of the day. She had f- four husbands and one live-in who wasn't a husband. And, and through all this, Jesus came and he shared the gospel with her. And she, she ran back into town and she said, come see the guy who told me everything that I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And the whole town came out 
And they listened to Jesus. He stayed with him for another few days, heard the gospel. And at the end of that section in John chapter 4, it said that many people told the woman, we now believe not because of what he did for you, but because of his words. One insignificant person. One woman at the well who was a social outcast. Jesus redeemed her and her life became more than anyone ever thought it could become. Jesus redeems outcasts and undesirables and throwaways of the world. Oftentimes, our worldly view of who should be saved and who shouldn't taints our approach to evangelism. We want to see somebody of influence, somebody of recognition. We want to see them get saved. But God often picks the lowest and the least. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, he says, Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world to bring to nothing the things that are so that no one may boast in the presence of God. Why does God redeem weak people like me and sinful people like me and people, you know, I grew up in an insignificant place and and had, um, you know, a poor background and there was nothing in me that could have uh, made me attractive to God. But because of that, God chose what is low and despised so that no human may boast in his presence. So that as is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Have you ever heard the story of how um, Billy Graham got saved? It started way back with a guy named Ed Kimball. Ed Kimball was just a normal Sunday school teacher. Uh, He had a group of boys in his Sunday school class. He, he did not lead a particularly significant life. <clears throat> but in 1858, God put it on his heart to go to a Boston shoe clerk and compel him to give his life to Christ. He was so nervous, he walked around, and then the day he worked up enough nerve to do it, he finally got to the, the door of the shoe store, and he thought, I don't want to embarrass this, this kid. I don't want to walk in at his workplace, come in and burst in and share the gospel. And it was, the minute all those doubts started to creep into Ed Kimball's mind, he says he grabbed the door, and he walked right in, and he found a guy named D.L. Moody in the back of the shoe store, And through the presentation of the gospel, he compelled him to give his life to Christ. D.L. Moody became an evangelist, preaching all over. In England in 1879, he awakened evangelistic zeal, passed on to a guy named F.B. Meyer, who was the pastor of a small church. F.B. Meyer preached um, then in an American college campus, and he brought to Christ a student named J. Wilbur Chapman. J. Wilbur Chapman was engaged in YMCA work, employed by a former baseball player named Billy Sunday to do evangelistic work. So Billy Sunday then held a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina. And in that revival, a group of local men were so enthusiastic afterward that they planned another evangelistic campaign. And in that campaign, a guy named Mordecai Ham came to preach. And during Mordecai Ham's revival, a young man named Billy Graham heard the gospel and yielded his life to Christ. You see that secession of gospel faithfulness? 
Billy Graham has shared the gospel with more people worldwide in the last 200 years than anyone in the previous 1,800 years almost combined through the use of technology and <clears throat> stadiums and amphitheaters and PA systems. Through his ministry, the gospel was proclaimed throughout the world. But if you trace it back, it came to a guy named Ed Kimball who knew a 19-year-old unruly shoe clerk named D.L. Moody who was resistant to the gospel and had been raised in a... <clears throat> a United Church of Christ background where he never heard the gospel. Through Ed Kimball to D.L. Moody to F.B. Meyer to J. Wilbur Chapman to Billy Sunday to this group of local people who hired Mordecai Ham to a young man named Billy Graham. You just never know how God can use you to change one person's life if you're committed to sharing the gospel message. You know, <clears throat> I'll close with this, I promise. The social gospel would have approached the beggar. And they, there would have been, uh, the social gospel is a, is a view of the Bible and our role as Christians <clears throat> to help people, but it lacks a, 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 a gospel message that Jesus says, repent and believe. It's content to help people. It lacks the gumption to say the words of Jesus where he says, no one comes to the Father through me unless you repent and believe. I imagine that if Peter and John had subscribed to a social gospel, they might have taken a GoFundMe and got this guy a new wheelchair, or maybe they would have improved his living conditions, or maybe they would have helped him with food or attracted attention to him. They would have done something other than share the explicit words of the gospel. <clears throat> As you'll see next week, Peter shares the gospel with clarity. He says things like, you denied the holy and righteous one and granted a murderer to be released. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Peter's about to bring it next week. Listen, if you want to pre-read it, I mean, he is not tiptoeing on eggshells with his gospel proclamation. The gospel is offensive, but it is the greatest thing that Peter and John could have done for this beggar. Could have dropped some coins in there, sure, but they gave him the gospel and it was worth more than anything. Father, we thank you for our time together today. We thank you for your word to today. Um, there's somebody in someone's life that's hearing this message right now that maybe someone in here has deemed someone else unworthy to hear the gospel message. Maybe they've considered them too much of an outcast or too far gone or in some way unredeemable or unsavable. And maybe they've just overlooked someone in their everyday life who needs to hear the gospel. And who knows what that person would become if they were to give their life to Jesus Christ today. Father, when I think about the guy who came door to door to share the gospel, he has no idea what the last 30 years of my life have been like. He was just a faithful guy who didn't give me any money or anything other than the gospel message, and it was enough to change the direction of my life forever. Father, is there someone today who needs to hear the gospel message from someone in this room? I pray that they would not stop short of the the clear truths of the gospel, but that you would give them a boldness and a willingness 
to, like Ed Kimball, grab the door of the shoe store and walk in and share the gospel, compelling someone to believe. I thank you, Lord, for this word, and I pray that someone might be saved as a result of the application of somebody else in this church to share the gospel with someone outside of here. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.